0: Well, I I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. For the past month and a half or so, we've been going through Malachi. And we've arrived this morning just right on the precipice of chapter 3. Fundamentally, for sake of review for you this morning, the book of Malachi is um, an oracle of rebuke oracle means a a burden it is a heavy message of rebuke malachi is writing to a group of people who had forgotten the lord they had questioned god and they had forsaken him and fundamentally they had forgotten him and malachi was simply calling the people to remember the lord that's what he's calling people to do In the first five verses, they'd forgotten His love. Chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but they say, how have you loved us? And then God goes on to explain how it is that He had loved them. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 9, they had forgotten His honor. Read many times, verse 6 there, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my respect? And they said... How have we despised your name in this way? And he goes on to explain about the ways that he needs to be honored. And then in chapter 2, beginning of verse 10, going through verse 16, they had forgotten about his people. They were dealing treacherously with one another. They had forgotten the the covenants they've made with one another. They had forgotten the covenant that they made with the Lord and so he reminds them and tells them to keep their covenants. And so today, it's no different. We're going to keep on the same thing because it is the message of Malachi. In our text this morning, we find that these people had forgotten the justice of God. In fact, you can even see it there at the end of verse 17. Where is the God of justice? They had forgotten His justice. They had not realized that He is a just God. And so appropriately, my message this morning is entitled, Don't Forget his justice. Don't forget His justice. I want to read our text. Chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied Him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I am going to send my messenger to, And he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former days. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and against the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, The widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. As I said earlier, the the issue of the text is raised, the very last phrase of verse 17. Where is the God of justice? Israel had doubted the justice of God. They had doubted his desire to punish the evildoer and reward the righteous. Now, as you think about this, why is it that Israel would have doubted these things? Why would Israel doubt of these things? I think it's somewhat clear. I think they just had their eyes open. And they were looking at what was going around them. They were observing. It's their observations is why they said this. They said a little bit upwards in the verse. If you look, it says, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Israel looked around at their surroundings and observed that things were going well for those who were doing evil. And that that didn't compute to them. Israel was expecting to see the wicked people be cursed and punished by the Lord. I mean, after all, this is a proper and right expectation. That is the theme and thrust of the Old Testament. If you want to boil the Old Testament down to one theme almost, it's God will reward the righteous and He will curse the wicked. Leviticus 26, a great passage, talks about this. The very first half of the passage just lays out all the blessings that will come upon the people who obey the Lord. And then the last half of the passage speaks about all the curses that will come upon those who disobey and disregard the Lord. It's a theme in the Old Testament. You can just go to the Proverbs. I mean, consider some of these Proverbs. Just how a general truism it is that God will punish the evildoer. Proverbs 12, 24, The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. And here they saw the hand of the diligent. They were ruling. And the slack hand wasn't being put to labor. The slack hand was ruling. It was was like flipped. Proverbs 13, 15, Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous is hard. And the people of Israel said, No, 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 we see the way of the treacherous and it's going easy for them. It's not going hard. Proverbs fourteen twenty two, will they not go astray who devise evil? But kindness and truth will be to those who devise good. And, and they saw those devising evil and they weren't going astray. And they saw those who devised good and kindness and truth wasn't with them. And so as Israel saw all these things, they were upset a little bit. They were questioning the goodness of God. Instead, what they saw is those engaged in wickedness were at ease. And it may well be that those who were at ease were maybe governmental officials from Persia who had come over and were oppressing the people of God in some way. It may have been that they were from the foreign pagan nations around worshipping the Baals and worshipping the false idols. And God wasn't striking them. Or it may have been even wicked people right up in the midst of Israel themselves and God wasn't striking them. It may have been all of these people. It's probably what I think. Just a, a plethora of people who are committing evil and not... Receiving the, the curse of God. And, and they were bringing their, their concerns to the Lord. In fact, often they were. If you look at the first half of verse 17, it seems like like they said frequently, God says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. The words are coming so often to God. And they said, how have we wearied Him? You're, you're saying this. You're saying everyone who does good and when it does evil, is good in the sight of the Lord. Where's, there's no justice here, God. There's no justice here, God. There's no justice. And repeatedly, they cried out again and again and again and again and again. And they were probably coming with proof, too. They were proving that God had forgotten them and, and abandoned them. They said, look at these people. Aren't they doing evil, God? Why aren't you cursing them? Well, I just say down through the history of the world, there have been many people who have become distraught and disheartened as they've sought to serve the Lord. They sought to serve the Lord and what has it brought? It's only brought trouble. And there have been others who have disregarded the Lord and their ways has been at ease. Do you guys know anybody like that at all? You just, just think about, boy, they disregard the Lord and you look at them and say, wow, things are pretty easy for them. I mean, one of the most famous of these people who struggled with this was Asaph. His testimony is given in Psalm. What Psalm is it given in? Asaph? Psalm. Psalm. 73 is where Asaph is. It's a great, you know, here is a righteous man pursuing God. He kept his heart pure in his walk with God. And yet he faced trials. And his trials came about because he observed the wicked. There it is. They were prospering. Life was going well. But... For his life, it was different. He was suffering. It was difficult for him. He was being chastened. Asaph saw these things. He said it was troublesome in his sight. He began to doubt the Lord. He began to doubt the ways of God. He began to doubt the goodness of God. You know, maybe you've experienced these same thoughts that Asaph did. Lord, I'm seeking to serve you with all my heart. I've set you always before me. I've dedicated the first part of every day before you. I've sought to walk with integrity before you. I've taught my children in your ways. I've made the church a priority, both of my time and my talents. I've given the church my treasures. I've extended my hand to the poor and the needy. What have I received? i received trouble, Lord. Things are not going well for me. I feel overworked. I feel ridiculed and oppressed by others for my boldness of Christ. I need a vacation, but I can't afford a vacation. Our finances are always tight. Our possessions are worn down. Our car needs repair. Our house needs repair. Our clothes are old and ragged. My health isn't good i'm suffering from arthritis my wife has migraines is this what i get god for serving you and then i look at my neighbors it's a different story they haven't set the lord before them they've spent their days in their own selfish pleasures they put evil before their eyes they spend their weekends at their cabin on the lake they never step foot into the doors of a church they never give you lord a second thought words that come out of their mouth are blasphemous and yet what do they receive? they receive blessing his sales job is going so well He works but a few days a week. They take frequent vacations to the countries of their choice. Their cars are all new. Their house is big. They eat the choices of food. Their bodies are strong and lean. They go to the health club every day. What's up, Lord? Why does it go so well with those rebelling against you? It's so hard with me. Where is your justice? Hello? Are you up there? That's what Asaph said. Listen to what he said in Psalm 73. He said, I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, their body is fat. They are not in trouble like other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness, their imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, as people return to this place, and the waters of abundance are drunk by them, and they say, how does God know? And there's no knowledge with the Most High. Behold, these are the wicked and are always at ease. They have increased in wealth. And Asaph's saying, where's the God of justice? Where's justice in all this, O Lord? And as Asaph saw this, what was stirring his own heart was doubts. About serving the Lord. He thought all his efforts were in vain. He said, My feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. I've been stricken all day long. I've been chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. And then you know what happened? Do you remember what happened? Remember anybody remember? He stepped foot in the house of God. He was with God's people. He pondered God's justice. And he knew that God would deal with them. Listen to what he said Psalm 73, "Until I came to the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end." And upon perceiving their end, all was well with Asaph. He said, Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they're destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. And like a dream when one awakes, So, Lord when aroused. You will despise their form. And with these words, Asaph was satisfied. He was satisfied with the apparent injustices today that surrounded him. And he could declare, Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But I want you to catch, what is it that satisfied Asaph, ultimately, seeing their end. That's what allowed him to deal with the injustices that he sees around him. When I came into the sanctuary of God, I perceived their end. It was a vision of the end that gave him comfort. Asaph found his comfort knowing that God would make everything right, that every evil would be punished, that those who are far from God would perish, that those who are unfaithful to the Lord would be destroyed And Asaph lived, then, with the end in view. And though it appears now that God's rewarding the wicked and punishing the righteous, he knew that all will be made right in the end. And I just tell you, as followers of Christ, that's how we need to live. We think about the justice of God, things seem unfair. We need to trust Him that the workers of evil, who appear now to be living the good life, will ultimately be punished in that day. And we need to trust Him that the righteous who are suffering today will ultimately be rewarded. I love how D.A. Carson put it. Like prints on a sandy beach that are obliterated by the incoming tide, so the heavy trace of wicked people, so appallingly evident to us now, will be swept away by God Himself. In other words, the tracks the wicked make today are like footprints in the sand. And they're there, and it is real. But when the flood comes in, they'll be swept away. As believers in Christ, that's what we need to always keep before us. It may well be that we look upon the wicked in despair because they're at ease while we suffer, but be assured that God will deal with them. His justice may be delayed, but be assured that His justice will come. Well, in our text this morning, we see how God points the people of Israel to the realities of the end. When He answers this question, and in the first five verses, He answers the question, Where's the God of justice? Let me tell you where the God of justice is. And in every instance, He's pointing them forward to a future day when He's going to deal with the injustices of the world. First of all, let's look at the first point. He will send His messengers. That's what verse 1 says. Behold, I am going to send my messenger... And he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now I said, point one, he will send his messengers. Okay, There are two messengers he's talking about here. They're easily identified actually. The first is identified as my messenger. The second is identified as the messenger of the covenant. Now, the first one is easy to identify. My messenger is John the Baptist. Three of the four gospel writers clearly quote from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 and say, this is John the Baptist. We go to each of those. I just want to tell you about what took place in Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist was in prison. He was confused as to the ministry of Jesus. On the one hand, Jesus was demonstrating all the signs of the Messiah. He was preaching a wonderful message. He was performing great miracles just as prophesied in the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah. On the other hand, there there were some things about the ministry of Jesus that didn't quite match up the coming day of the Lord. I mean, when when, um, John thought about the Messiah coming, he was thinking about wrath and judgment and and fire. Speaking about fire. <laughs> you can talk to Chad Mitchell and uh, Greg Christensen. They tried to set fire to uh, grandmother's house. <laughs> up, up in flames. Caught some uh, insulation by, by fire and tried to put it out. And it was smoky. And but, but it's okay now, right? Okay, I hope so. But when John thought about about the coming of the Messiah, he thought fire would come. As the Lord said, the day of hosts will be the day of reckoning against everyone proud and lofty, against everyone who's lifted up, that he may be abased. And it will be against the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against the oaks of Bashan, against the lofty mountains, against the hills that are lifted up, against the high tower, against every fortified wall, against the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. The pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of man will be abased. But the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Right? Picturing here governments falling Picturing political revolution, picturing Messiah coming in as king and everyone bowing to him. And, and it didn't quite match what was taking place in John's mind. And so he had some doubts. And so he sent some of his disciples to say, Jesus, are you the expected one or shall we expect someone else? And Jesus explained to John's disciples he was indeed performing signs of the Messiah. The blind were seeing. The, the lepers were cleansed. The lame were walking and the message of the Spirit of grace was being proclaimed. And so as they returned to John, Jesus then turned to the crowd and spoke about John the Baptist. He said, what did you go out to the wilderness to see, a reed shaken by the wind? Some wishy-washy guy? He said, no, but what did you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces, but what did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, and I tell you, one who's more than a prophet. And then Matthew 11, verse 10. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. A straight quote right here from Malachi 3, verse 1, identifying the messenger here with John the Baptist. John's role was to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, and he did it very well. When John stood, they kept saying, Are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? And he he said, No, I'm not the light. There is the light. You remember when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. I'm not worthy to untie His sandals. He's the one. I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of Him. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist pointed his way to Jesus, the Lord who is coming. And so obviously, the second messenger here identified as the messenger of the covenant was none other than Jesus Himself. Now, it's not quite as clear that the messenger of the covenant is Jesus because we don't have any New Testament passages that tell us this. Furthermore, the messenger of the covenant, the only time this ever occurs in the Bible is right here. But nobody doubts that this is Jesus. The verse seems to indicate that the role of first messenger is to prepare the way for the second messenger. And if John the Baptist is the first messenger... The second messenger must be the one who came after John and there's like nobody in history who ever satisfied that role other than Jesus. And and also, it's interesting, given this clue that it was Jesus, when it says this, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. It's probably talking about Jesus coming suddenly into the temple. And Jesus did on a few occasions. right? He was born in obscurity and then, boom, He comes in and Simeon gets to lay His eyes on the expected one. And He came in even boldly into the temple and, and cast out the money changers. So He came suddenly into the temple. And it says, He is the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming. Right? The Jews were delighting. They're longing for the Messiah to come. And Malachi is prophesying of the day that the Messiah would come. Now the biggest question that comes at this point, whether this is referring to His first coming or to His second coming. That's really the big question here. And, and I just say this, it's got to be referring to His first coming. John the Baptist didn't prepare the way for the second coming, did he? I mean, it would, wouldn't make sense for John the Baptist to come, point to Jesus. There he is. Here he is. I've got to decrease. He must increase. I'm not worthy to baptize him, but he's the one. And then John died, And then pointing 2,000 years later, it doesn't make sense. No, it's got to refer to the first coming. And yet, though, there are some overtones in this passage that, that give us a hint of his second coming as well. Things full, not quite fully accomplished in his first coming. You know, this is how, uh, how prophecy oftentimes works. Theologians call it the already-not-yet dynamic. you heard that, already-not-yet? I hope you have. It is something that um, I don't speak about a lot, but it is intrinsic to Bible interpretation. Already-not-yet. There are certain portions of prophecy that are already fulfilled, and yet there's kind of a bigger scope of them that aren't yet or not yet fulfilled. That's how prophecy works. I mean, you just think about what Jesus said on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? He's coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, telling the disciples what you saw. Don't tell anybody until you see the Son of Man rise from the dead. The disciples in Matthew 17, verse 10 say, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And listen to what Jesus says. It shows how this already not yet facet works into prophecy, especially for our passage this morning. Jesus said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. See, this future aspect about Messiah will be coming, but I say to you, Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So the Son of Man is going to suffer at His hands. And Matthew 17, clearly says, the disciples understood He'd spoken to them about John the Baptist. So with prophecy, as in this case, Jesus said, there's two Elijahs. One has already come in John the Baptist, but another Elijah is coming, and another Elijah will come to prepare the way for the Lord when he comes a second time. One already came, one has not yet come, and this is really the dynamic of our text this morning. The messenger of the covenant has already come. He came into the temple suddenly, he did make purifications for sin, but the the messenger of the covenant has not yet come in all of his fullness, particularly as verse 5 speaks about the, the judgment that comes. There will be a day in which he places all his enemies under his feet. And that day he'll judge the world with finality, as verse 5 says. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll, we'll get there. But the big question on the table now, though, in context of this, is how is the fact that, that, that messengers are coming, how does that help the one who's doubting the justice of God? Thought about that? Because he's answering the question. You don't see my justice? Let me tell you about my justice. I'm sending my messengers. Well, let me illustrate that for you. I, I think that it helps in the same way that if, if you have an accident on the road and you hear the news that police are on the way, you're comforted. I picture yourself driving down the highway and, and the traffic at rush hour, traffic ahead of you slows down and, and it comes to a kind of more abrupt stop and you stop and then you look in your rear view mirror and there's someone who's not stopping. And someone comes and <laughs> crashes into you. And you kind of jostle around a little bit and you, you get out, you inspect your car, the damage done to your car, you inspect the damage done to the car that hits you and you begin to talk to the driver and, and the driver claims you're at fault. You stopped too fast. And you said, no, no, I stopped in time. You're the one who didn't stop in fast. And he had this argument, no, you're at fault. No, you're at fault. No, you're at fault. No, you're at fault. Like, where's the justice in that? And you're thinking in your mind about insurance, right? You're thinking, if he's not going to claim responsibility, then his insurance company isn't going to take care of this. And you start thinking about the financial questions. And you start thinking about all this stuff. And you're worried, and you're frustrated and you're anxious and you're going back and forth and then you hear the good news. The police are on the way. And it comforts your soul because you know justice will be done. Though it's not so at the moment, you have great peace because you know one is going to come is going to declare the innocent party and the guilty party. You know you're innocent because you stopped in time and you know they're guilty, right? The driver who hit you because he didn't stop in time. And though things aren't settled yet, they soon will be. And sure enough, the policeman comes, writes the person who hits you a ticket, and then all is well. But think about when did the turn come in your mind? The turn came not entirely when the other driver received the ticket, though that was a good day when you were vindicated, but the turn came when you heard that the policeman was on the way. When you heard those words, you knew that all things would be straightened out someday. In a similar way, that's the reality of chapter 3, verse 1. Do you think, Israel, I'm simply going to allow these injustices to continue? Wouldn't you know a little bit about me? Chapter 3, verse 6, I don't change. I'm going to come. It, sure, it may be going well with the evil people today, but listen up. I'm coming. And I'm going to stand in my temple and I'm going to right the wrongs. Those who are guilty will be charged. They'll get booked. They'll be punished according to their sins. Don't fret. My day is coming. And so, church family, I simply say this, don't forget His justice. Though it may appear to be delayed now, it will come, and it will come perfectly. When the day of His justice comes, all will be made right. His justice will shine brightly, right? which is the thrust of verses 2 through 5. Right? The second instruction comes for us in verses 2 through 4. He will purify His people. Not only will He send His messengers, He also purify His people. Look at verses 2 through 4. Let me read them. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? He's like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Now verse 2 begins with two rhetorical questions. When Christ appears... Who can stand before Him? And the answer really is, you know what? Nobody can stand before Him. It's because of our sin. Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Nobody could stand. Before holy God, we're undone like Isaiah. The only way we can stand before God without being consumed in His holiness is if we too are holy and righteous. That's the only way we can stand before Him which is what verses 2 and 3 address. They address what God will do when He comes with His people. They're saturated with words of refinement and purifying and cleansing. Look, Look what it says. It says, He is like a refiner's fire. When Jesus comes, He'll come like a refiner's fire. When gold or silver or copper or any other metal is mined from the earth, it doesn't come out pure. There's impurities within it. And the refiner, you know what he does, he, he takes, takes that metal and he, he heats it up and, and melts everything in there and then maybe he has a centrifuge or, or maybe he stirs it somewhat and the impurities, they rise to the top. And then the refiner, what does he do? He takes the, the cream off the top and, and casts it out and continues to, to boil it and continues to get this liquid so that the impurities can come to the top and he just takes it right off the surface. That's what a refiner does. That's what God does with us. He's like a fuller soap. When Jesus comes, he'll be like purifying soap. He's talking about the process of cleaning clothes. Now, when we think about cleaning clothes, we think about this big, big box of thing like this, right? And we, we take our dirty blue jeans and we lift up this lid and we throw them in there. We throw some detergent, you know, and we put them down and then we go boom. It's all cleaned, right? You think what we do? And yet what was back then when they, they cleaned? It was a little bit differently. They didn't have big machines like that. They had washboards or they had stones and and they took their clothes and they dipped them in water with uh with soap and then they, they put them on some board or some stones, and you know what they did? They scrubbed and 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 they scrubbed. and they scrub, you know, get it all out, and then they'd rinse it some more and they'd scrub and scrub and scrub and to finally get it clean. That's the picture here. You need to have it in mind. And when Jesus comes, He's like a refiner's fire that's going to heat you and take away the impurities. And when Jesus comes, He's going to be like the the fuller soap who's going to scrub you and scrub you and scrub you and scrub you until your dirt is removed. And these pictures, listen, they're not pleasant. This isn't a a pleasant picture. This is a, a painful picture. In fact, in some sense, there is a feeling of pain in your soul when the Lord does His sanctifying work among us. I just thought about several different ways in which... The Lord Jesus cleanses us and purifies us. Fundamentally, the Lord does it through His own work on the cross. As the refiner has to stoke the fire and as the launderer has to scrub the clothes, so Jesus, in order to cleanse us, has to do some work first. And the work that Jesus did was to come and die for our sins upon the cross. This is a painful labor. It was a labor of love. Because upon the cross is what cleanses us from our sin. He's accomplished a purifying work for us. But it doesn't come into our lives without pain. It doesn't come without pain on his part and on our part. He does the work, and we feel the pain. I think in our lives, he purifies us through conviction of sin. You know, sin is something that the Lord hates. When you come into a knowledge of your own sin before the Lord, it's painful. When you see God for all it is and you see you for all that you've done, and the clearer that becomes, it is a painful experience of the soul. David wrote about this. He said in Psalm 32, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through its groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy, and Upon me. My vitality was dried away as with the fever heat of summer. Dried up. No energy. Lethargic. Conviction of sin is painful. And the only cure for conviction of sin is confession. It's the only cure. David went on to say, I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That heavy hand that was upon me in conviction, that that fuller that was working to soap and cleanse it out. I'm cleansing you, I'm cleansing you, I'm cleansing you. I confessed my sin. You're clean. So it's taking place. You know, confession is so simple, isn't it? God, I was wrong. I offended you. I hurt my fellow man. Please forgive me. It's so simple. But oh, it's so hard. Oh, is it hard. Because it shatters all pride and all self-sufficiency. But church family, listen, know the blessing of confession. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose in spirit there is no deceit. Confession is simple, but it's never easy and without pain. But that's how He purifies us. So we confess our sin. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. First John one nine. Right? Thirdly, think of another way in which he cleanses us. He purifies us through trials. First chapter of James, right, tells us to rejoice when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your face produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials are like spiritual exercise. When we you exercise our bodies, what happens? We become strong and we become fit. Right? We look like Tim Iverson. Right? Strong and mighty. When trials come in our lives, they strengthen our faith, which has a purifying effect upon our lives. Now, sometimes exercise isn't so pleasant causes some pain, causes some difficulty. It's hard. And trials are not pleasant. They're often painful. But trials are sovereignly designed to perfect our faith. It's the way God refines us. It's the way He brings the boiling in our a melt, in the, 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 um, the, the metal of our life that's filled with impurities. He brings the, the boiling fire of trial and skims it off. And the promise of James is that we endure through those trials and become perfect, lacking in nothing. As he skims away the impurity and skims it away and skims it away. Well, a fourth way Jesus purifies us is through discipline. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 explain that the Lord, what the Lord does when we stray. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof. For whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as the Father corrects His Son whom He delights. When we go astray... The Lord puts His hand on our life and inflicts pain on us. So we learn that's a bad way to go. I don't want to go down that way because I know God's hand is going to come upon me and so you learn through discipline that I'm, I'm going to go this way instead. That's what discipline is. It's the way He refines us, the way he purifies us. And though discipline for a moment may not seem to be joyful but sorrowful, yet for those who have been trained by it, afterwards it does yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In other words, the end result is good. I mean, you think about this. The end result of God's convicting us of our sin is good, right? And the end result of trials is good. And the end result of discipline is is good. Oh, the experience may be painful, but the effect is good. And that's exactly what we see in verses 3 through 4. Again, listen as I read it. I want you to see the end effect of these purifying Things that God brings into our life. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. The end result of such purification is a people who are able to please the Lord in their worship. The purification of the sons of Levi will allow them to bring righteous offerings to the Lord. The purification of Judah and Jerusalem will allow the Lord to be pleased with their offerings given to the Lord. And I think even the language here, just talking about the sons of Levi, right? And talking about Judah and Jerusalem speaks about God's faithfulness to Israel. There will be a day when the Jewish people come back to the Lord. That's what Romans 11 teaches. Then all Israel will be saved. Paul's talking about that after the cross. Though they're hardened today, there'll be a day when they're saved. In that day, worship will be acceptable before the Lord. But by extension, listen, we can apply this fully to us as well. All of us who have known and experienced a purifying effect of the cross of Christ upon our lives. When we are cleansed from our sin and we're walking righteously with the Lord, our worship becomes well pleasing in His sight. That's how the Christian life works. As God does his painful, sanctifying work in our lives, we in turn give him great honor and glory to worship him with lives consistent to the purifying effect. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist asks the question Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? Him who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Or Psalm 15, 1 and 2. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? And who may dwell on your holy hill? He walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. That's the great reality of the people of God. We've received free forgiveness. It's offered through the blood of Christ. We've experienced our sins taken away so they're never, never, ever to return again. As far as the east is from the west, so far have cast your transgressions from you and then motivated out of love to our Savior, we've sought to live lives worthy of the gospel that saved us. And God's pleased to accept their worship. It's what Jesus will do, has done when He comes. He will purify His people. But you need to know that all won't experience His refining work. I mean, the refining work is good because you start with this impure metal and you refine it and what do you get out? You get a pure metal. You get something good out. And you start with this dirty pair of jeans and you scrub it and then you get a pair of jeans out. Right? Good result. But there are some... God won't purify, He'll just throw away. That there, I'm not going to purify that. I'm just going to throw it away. Any you have old jeans? You just don't clean up. Just throw away. That's what God does with the wicked. Verse five. Here comes my third point. He will judge the wicked. He will judge the wicked. Verse 5 we, see, we read, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. In this verse we see a list of sins that the Lord will punish in the day in which He returns. Now certainly these aren't the only sins He's going to punish. The only sins He's going to judge. merely a sampling but these are specific sins he will condemn. Against the sorcerers. These are those who delve into spiritualistic practices, particularly here of the, the cult, maybe witchcraft or astrology. Maybe some superstitions might fall into this. You know, maybe signs of the zodiac or the, the animal of the Chinese calendar. You can really apply it, though, to any spiritual activity apart from the Lord, seeking guidance in whatever stars or vortex or new age or whatever. He's going to condemn those people. He's going to judge them. Second, against the adulterers. These are those who are sinning sexually. Clearly spoken about in the seventh commandment, who take another man's wife. But by extension, it certainly applies to all sexual misconduct as well. His judgment would be against liars. Literally, this is against those who falsely swear. Right? They make a solemn promise of something that simply isn't true. And thereby they deceive others. The judgment would be against oppressors. Those who oppress the wage earner. Those who oppress the widow. Those who oppress the orphan. And I think in some sense you can say those who oppress the alien. Just turning him aside rather than taking him in. Four different people. The laborer is at the mercy of his master to be paid what is due for a fair day's wage. And their masters are oppressed by withholding that, or putting undue requirements upon their wage earners. A widow, an orphan, they are at the mercy of many without rights, without family, without help, without support. And the people who oppress them, God will judge. The alien is the immigrant, seeking merely to survive. He's too weak to stand on his own. But the one who turns him away rather than giving him help will be oppressed. In the end, God will stand up for those who are weak and defenseless. That's what it's saying. His judgment will be against the sorcerers, adulterers, liars, oppressors, and finally, those who don't fear the Lord. And do not fear me. It's really, that's the main reason why people pursue the occult. They don't fear the one true God. They can, they can get at some spiritual experience some other way. They don't fear the Lord. That's why people commit adultery. They don't think there will be a day of final reckoning. I can have my pleasures now with no consequences. That's why people feel free to lie. They don't think that anyone's around with the ability to hear. To hear but remember, oh, be careful little lies what you see. Oh, be careful little ears what you hear. For your Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes or ears, what you see. You know that song, Hannah? Not really, maybe. But the one who lies realizes God is not there. That's why people will oppress the weak. They don't think there's anybody able to stand up for them. You know, there might be this little weakling in school. There a big brother behind him they will um, treat the weak in a certain way. But if there's no big brother behind them, oftentimes they'll be oppressed. But God says, I'm behind the weak. That's why throughout the whole Old Testament law, there are things talking about the orphan and the widow. I'm a father to the fatherless. I will help the widow. Help the alien. So you step back from verse 5. You say, okay, now what's what's the big picture here? You realize here that God of justice will arise. He will make things right. And though things now appear Israel to be upside down, Chapter 2, verse 17, those who do evil appear to be good in the sight of the Lord. God will turn it right side up in that final day. And I think this is really focusing much towards the second coming, absolutely, when He's going to come and finally judge with finality. You you read Revelation, it talks about the, the white horse coming, and He's going to right all wrongs. He's going to judge. He's going to cast the angel you know, uh, Satan into the lake of fire and all of his followers and all his demons. He's going to finally right all wrongs, who I think is talking about. And so, church family, here's the application, right? When we see injustices arise in the world, and there will be many of them, don't forget his justice because he will judge the wicked. And oh, the judgment may become a bit slower than you'd like it to come. Maybe you want it to come right now. Maybe you're like James and John. You remember when uh, Jesus came into Samaria and the Samaritans rejected them, rejected Jesus, what they said? Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Because we want justice now. They can't reject you. Just wait. That's what God says. Just calm down. Just wait. Maybe your blasphemies from people's mouths and your blood boils up and you just want to lash against them. Maybe you see the injustices that take place, have a righteous anger to want to see the Lord deal with them right now. I mean, I think about you, you think about the abortion clinics. And maybe you have this desire to do what others have done bomb abortion clinics or, or shoot abortion doctors. Taking justice into their own hands, right? And those who do that fail to realize that God will set it all straight someday. You don't have to take justice personally into your hands. No, if there's issues of justice, take it to the state. Let the state deal with it righteously. Let the courts deal with it. You don't have a personal vendetta. And ultimately, when it comes, you trust it to God who will judge perfectly. God says, there's a day coming when I'm going to bring the wicked into my courtroom and they won't get away with anything. So just wait. Again, I quote D.A. Carson. I sent this out in the Weekly Word a few weeks ago. I'm not sure if you remember it, but it says this. The wheels of God's justice grind exceeding slow, but they grind exceeding fine. You catch that? God's justice might be slow, but it's just perfect. And so you trust yourself, right, to to the righteous judgment of God. A day of reckoning is coming and God is going to settle everything. And I just say, church family, practically, this makes a huge difference in your life. I know there are people in our congregation who have been hurt badly by other people. Maybe your parents abused you in some way. Maybe your parents were mean to you. Maybe a brother or sister has greatly wronged you. Maybe people have stolen great money from you or stolen property or or damaged something. Maybe a, a close friend has turned against you. The good news today is that you don't have to take any of that vengeance into your own hands. You don't have to stew on the offense. You don't have to figure out how to get back at them so that justice is finally served. You can just take that injustice and let it just roll off your back. You know that God's going to settle the ledger. And he's going to settle the ledger perfectly. And so you don't have to carry that on your soul and figure out how can I get back at this person. Rather, you can do what Paul said. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Pay back evil with good. Paul said in Romans 12, Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. Oh, it's not that you have to deny the offense. It's not that you say, Oh, not a big deal. It's okay. You don't have to do that. You don't have to deny the justice of God. You know, God, they hurt me. But it's okay. No, it's not okay. They hurt you, but you don't have to go back. You can just say, God, they hurt me. Here, you just take it so it's off of my hands. And it gives you a tremendous peace when you're not stewing against all the injustices done against you. God's punishment will perfectly fit the crime. I had a great illustration last night in our family worship, reading through the book of Numbers. And uh, it came on this account of Miriam and Aaron grumbling before the Lord. And um, the Lord was, was not happy with their complaining. And so Miriam was struck leprous on her hand. And Moses, being the humble man that he was, he. He pleaded for the Lord's mercy on her. He said, Oh Lord, heal her, I pray. Here she was, grumbling against the Lord, grumbling against Moses. God strikes her and God says, and Moses prays, Lord, heal her. Make it right. Make it good. But the Lord wasn't so gracious. He said, I don't have the exact words, but He took Miriam, expelled her outside of the camp for seven days as punishment before she was healed. And God's punishment is perfect. Where Moses said, Oh, just, just forgive her, God. Just let her go. Heal her now. And God said, No, she got seven days to pay of shame outside the camp. And then she'll come back in restored. See, God's justice is perfect. It's a perfect example of how we ought to act. We don't know all the facts. We can simply plead God's grace for someone. You know, they hurt me, God. But I pray you'd be gracious to them. And God will deal with them as he sees fit. This is what allows us when slapped on the right cheek to turn the other cheek because God will judge the wicked act and we don't have to get back right then and there. We can rest confidently in God who will ultimately right all wrong. So where is the God of justice? He's there. He's recording every every injustice done. He'll deal with every lawless deed in His time, not ours. In His way, and not ours. And the people of Malachi's day were simply impatient. They didn't entrust themselves to the perfect timing of God. And so I say, church family, don't forget His justice. So let's pray. Oh Lord, I would pray that You would put Your justice ever before our minds. Realize that You are a just God, that the Word which was spoken through angels, God proved unalterable, and that every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. God, and we know that um, You will punish every sin. And we do trust, God, that, that we would see the escape. Perhaps there's someone even here today who's trusting in their own goodness to get out of the punishment of God. And Lord, we know that can't take place. It's only through Christ. It's only through His sufferings that we can ever get out of the punishment of God. So I pray You'd lead us to Christ in these ways. Lead us to to the only One who purifies. As Christ does through His blood. We've been cleansed through precious blood. And so Lord, now as we even transition to Celebrate the Lord's Supper, I pray that we would reflect upon the Lord and reflect upon the cross, reflect upon the grace that's there and embrace it and love it and uh, pursue after it. So help us in our thoughts to realize, Lord, that You are one who, who will come and judge ultimately. You're the one who has come and will refine us. And so may we ever live to trust in Your justice because it's true and real and will come. Pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, we do want to transition to the